Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcasts at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Afshin Rutansi's Going Underground, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, Radio Havana Cuba, France 24, and NHK Japan. We will begin with Afshin Rutansi's Going Underground. He interviewed Jayata Ghosh, economics professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She speaks about the increasing global inequality, the uneven inflation of food and pharmaceuticals, and the burden of endless debt keeping developing countries in poverty, and how wealthy nations do not serve the interest of their disadvantaged masses. Going Underground Joining me now from New York City is award-winning University of Massachusetts at Amherst Professor Jayati Ghosh. So, or you signed a letter along with 236 uh, other economists uh, to UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and the World Bank boss uh, AJ Banga. I don't know how well it goes down at the World Bank or the IMF. <laughs> Tell me about this letter that you've signed, co-signed. So this letter actually, uh, the, the immediate context is the fact that the UN is in the process of a midterm review of the sustainable development goals okay and goal number 10 is reducing inequality so we have been arguing that it's peculiar that that's the goal that has been marginalized completely it's really the orphan child of all the sdgs there is nobody taking that up and emphasizing it and yet we feel uh, professor joe stiglitz and i we were involved in framing the letter, we feel that if you do not actually address inequality, you're not going to meet any of the other goals. And to address inequality, you have to begin by measuring it properly. So our letter is saying, well, look, one problem with this goal is that you have the wrong measure. The measure is what is called shared prosperity. Love the term, right? And it's looking at whether the bottom 40% of the population is growing faster than the average GDP. So if that's the case, then they're saying, oh, yes, fine, shared prosperity and no, not looking at any other inequality indicator. But in fact, we know in countries that you really have to look at the Gini coefficient. You have to look at, let's say, the Palma ratio, which is the ratio of the income of the top 10% of the population to the bottom 40% of the population. It's, it gives you a kind of, you know, who, the rich versus the poor relative ratio. And you have to look at these indicators for not just income, but also wealth, because we know wealth inequality is exploding. So what we're saying is, listen, you cannot go by an indicator that doesn't tell you the real state of inequality. They are claiming that more than half the countries are showing progress. But if you look at the Gini or you look at the Palma ratio, only about 20% of the countries are showing progress. In other words, 80% of countries are regressing. They're getting worse on these other indicators. We are seeing the wealth of the top 10% exploding, and yet more people 
in absolute number falling into poverty. And especially after COVID, we've actually seen more hungry people. The number of hungry have increased by more than 120 million, according to the FAO's estimation. In previous wars, their populations get tired of having to pay for wars. There seems to be an unlimited amount of money uh, in uh, Europe and the United States. So where's the money coming from uh, as uh, Europe gives it away and as the United States gives it away? You know, one of the biggest jokes that prevails in so many of these rich countries is that there is no money. We have seen that when they want, they can produce money out of a hat, right? During COVID, the U.S. spent an additional $30,000 per capita. We're talking trillions of dollars just emerging suddenly to pay for the COVID relief packages, okay? European Union, very, very large increases. I mean, all the rich countries increase their deficits, additional spending by between 10 to 30% of GDP, okay? By contrast, middle-income countries, low-income countries, they could barely, the middle-income countries spent about 5% of GDP, low-income countries, 2% of GDP. To give you the difference, the U.S. spends $30,000 additionally per person. Low-income countries spent $2 per person additional. That's the kind of difference we are talking about. But the point is that when the rich countries want, they can spend money. They can simply print and produce and spend the money. And they've done that during the pandemic. They've done that for any further stimulus packages. They've done it for the Ukraine war. They Very, very large bills going to a relatively small economy, massive amounts of defense spending going to Ukraine. They've done that to save their own banks. And they can work over weekends and be very flexible. If it's something like Silicon Valley Bank, suddenly you find no rules hold nothing. The same thing in Europe, when it's Credit uh, Suisse, which is at stake, suddenly they will go back on everything, all the regulations that they had declared were in, you know, inviolable, and they will provide re relief and assistance and come to a deal over a weekend. A country like Ghana, a country like Zambia, a country like all the countries, Chad, that are desperate for debt relief are waiting years and made to jump through endless hoops before they get even a little trickle of some money. Why is it, say, food inflation, say the past month or so, in Britain it's 20% food inflation, in India it's only 5%, in China one and a half, South Africa, okay, 11, Brazil 6%. Why is inflation for food going up in the countries that are uh, at war in Ukraine and not so much for the global south? This is all retail inflation. This is all the, the money that consumers face in their shops and that you know there's a very long distribution chain so the real story here is it's not because of what's happening to the global wheat price it's really about what's happening in that distribution chain governments in italy and france have got after i think the the pasta companies or you know the companies that produce all of those basic what they call basic food items because they are charging excessively high prices even when there is nothing really in terms of the costs to justify that you know, governments in the developing world also are very complex creatures. They reflect a particular political economy and often they reflect the interests of their own elites. And sometimes those elites are what we used to in the old days called comprador. That is, their interests are tied up with multinational capital as well. So it's not that the governments are representing really the interests of the people. I would say that's true even in the global north.
I mean, this whole thing about giving so much power, so, so many subsidies and then power to pharmaceutical companies that produce the vaccines entirely at public cost, but then were allowed to charge really prohibitive prices and retain the patents. That didn't benefit anyone other than the pharma companies and the finance companies that had invested in them. It didn't benefit ordinary people in the, in the global north. But so governments often operate in ways that don't reflect the interests of their own people. I'm teaching in the US now. I'm stunned at the ignorance about this, even in a, in a university town in a progressive part of the US. People simply don't know the role that Big Pharma is playing. They live with extraordinary high costs of drugs. I mean, uh, insulin, an essential life-saving drug for diabetes, is actually uh, prohibitively expensive. And you find instances of old people going without it because they can't afford to have a few more than a few doses a month and so on. Yet all of this is somehow accepted. And I find that extraordinary because it's a real lack of knowledge about how governments have created the regulations that will benefit large companies rather than the people. But the US does programs which it objects to other countries doing it. So it, it brought a case in the WTO against the Indian National Food Security Act, which is just providing food grain to the poorest of the poor. Whereas they have a food stamp program, which is WTO compatible, simply because they made the WTO rules in a way that would make it compatible. I mean, it's really shocking that we find such egregious examples of the North pushing policies that they would never apply in their own countries. Professor Jaiti Ghosh, thank you. That excerpted interview with Jayati Ghosh was by Afshin Ratansi from his twice-weekly program called Going Underground TV. You can find the complete interview at the Canadian-based streaming service called Rumble.com. They have also posted archived interviews Afshin did with Julian Assange and many others. Search for Going Underground TV at Rumble.com. On to Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. An interview with Par Holmgren, a Swedish meteorologist and Green member of the European Parliament. He talks about how Europe is preparing and not preparing for more climate-caused disasters like the floods in Libya. Radio Deutsche Welle. Now, the tragedy unfolding in Libya right now was caused by the latest in a global series of extreme weather events. In Europe, record-breaking heat and wildfires earlier this summer were followed by the opposite extreme, intense rainfall and dramatic flash floods. Today, members of the European Parliament met to discuss how to protect Europeans from such extreme weather events. Paul Holmgren is a Swedish member of the European Parliament. He belongs to the Greens and sits on the Environment Committee. Mr. Holmgren, thanks a lot for your time. Has today's debate on how to better protect Europeans from extreme weather resulted in any plan of action? Not yet, but hopefully in the near future. Uh, and we all know that uh, the global warming leads to more energy in the atmosphere, in the oceans, uh, and a stronger hydrological cycle, which means more severe droughts, but also more severe floodings. And then, of course, disasters as we see in, in, in Libya right now, and, and also wildfires all around the world, and also more uh, energy to the tropical hurricanes and, and storms, specifically in, in the Atlantic Ocean. 
Mm. I mean, we saw uh, the pictures there. It's been quite a tough year for Europe and indeed the rest of the world. Has this record summer resulted in more European unity given the agency of this topic? Uh, I think so. Uh, I mean, me being a green politician and also meteorologist, climate expert, and having worked with these issues for, for 20, 25 years now, uh, it's no surprise to me that this is happening now. Uh, we're at 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, and we're heading for 2 degrees in roughly 20, 25 years. So to me, it's no surprise. But unfortunately, I think there's a lot of people all around uh, Europe politicians included, that has been sort of asleep and thought that uh, disasters of, of, of this proportion uh, would happen much later in, in history. But it's happening now. Yeah, I mean, this isn't the first year we've seen such record temperatures in the summer. What is standing in the way of decisive action in Brussels? Well, uh, as you, you probably know, uh, we, we often, when it comes to political debates, have the, the conservative side uh, that want to more or less lower the ambition when it comes to, to increased ambitions, creating a sustainable uh, society for in, the, in the future. So there's always this uh, debate with, with more or less... Uh, usually more than 50% then on the side where they want to lower the ambitions. And, and this is dreadful, of course, because for, for every year without sufficient action, uh, these kinds of, of uh, severe, extreme weather events will be more and more frequent mm. in Europe and in the rest of the world. And that means, of course, also that we, we need to focus a lot of, of climate justice. Of, after all, it is the European Union, alongside with the United States, of course, that have released uh, by far the most greenhouse gases over history. Mm. We're usually right now focusing on, on the emissions in China, but this is something that has grown for, for centuries. And, and over that long time period, okay. it's countries like the United Kingdom, uh, Germany and United States that needs to take the full responsibility. Right. Quickly on this one, uh, climate change doesn't know borders. We know that. We've seen with Storm Daniel moving from Greece to Libya. Are there wider discussions taking place to work together with countries outside of Europe to mitigate its impact? Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, especially um, concerning the upcoming event, uh, COP28. Unfortunately, we, we are changing now and having a new climate commissioner. I think Franz Timmermans has done a, a good work for the first four years as climate commissioner. Uh, what we'll see, we will see what will happen now when, when probably then uh, Hoekstra from Netherlands will, will take that responsibility. And uh, I myself uh, don't uh, have, uh, unfortunately, very, very high um, credibility in him, especially not when compared to Franz Timmermans. Okay, digital time, we'll leave it here. Green member of the European Parliament, Paul Holmgren. That interview is from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, dw.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. Also available at most podcast sites. Next, Radio Havana, Cuba. Oxfam says that the G nations owe poor ones trillions of dollars in unpaid development aid. 
Brazilian President Lula da Silva criticized the U.S. for maintaining its economic sanctions on Cuba. Radio Havana, Cuba. British charity Oxfam says that the rich G7 nations or poor ones had estimated $13 trillion in unpaid development aid as well as support in the fight against the climate change. The organization said that instead of fulfilling their obligations, the international group of seven nations and their banks are demanding debt repayment of $232 million a day. Oxfam Interim Executive Director Amitabh Bihar said in the statement, quote, Wealthy G7 countries like to cast themselves as saviors, but they are operating a deadly double standard. They play by one set of rules while their former colonies are forced to play by another. It's the rich world that owes the Global South, the aid they promised decades ago but never gave, the huge costs from climate change caused by their reckless burning of fossil fuels, the immense wealth built on colonialism and slavery. In 2009, developed countries promised to transfer $100 billion annually between 2020 and 2025 to vulnerable states hit by increasingly severe climate-linked impacts and disasters. But that target was never met. Ono Hiroshi, Vice Minister for Global Environment Affairs at Japan's Environment Ministry, said Tokyo has been dispersing the $70 billion it committed into a financing over the five-year period. Quote, all countries should follow the good example of Japan so that we could achieve the $100 billion goal. Oxfam said the G7 leaders are meeting as billions of workers face pay cuts and steep price hikes. Global hunger has risen for a fifth consecutive year, while extreme wealth and extreme poverty have increased simultaneously for the first time in 25 years. Oxfam noted that the G7 is home to one 1,123 billionaires with a combined wealth of $6.5 trillion, and their wealth has grown in real terms by 45% over the past 10 years. Quote, carbon emissions from rich nations have estimated to have caused $8.7 trillion in losses and damage to low- and middle-income countries. The G7 must pay its debts. This is not about goodwill or charity. It is a moral obligation. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has criticized the U.S. blockade against Cuba and affirmed that the Caribbean nation is not a country of terrorists. This first published by First Post, Monday in India. In an extensive interview granted to this news and media website during his participation in the recent Group of 20, the G20 summit, the first Brazilian president denounced the fact that Cuba has been subjected to an economic, commercial and financial siege by Washington for 60 years, and that is why the population of the island cannot develop in the way it wishes. He called for the elimination of the campaign against Cuba. Lula confirmed that more than 30 years of visiting the island, he has never seen terrorist training centers nor weapons of mass destruction. Quote, that is why, he said, in my first opportunity with U.S. President Joe Biden, I am going to tell him that it is necessary to stop sanctioning the Caribbean nation. There are no explanations. I disagreed with the blockade when I was 50 years old, and now I am 77, and I still do not understand why this policy exists against Cuba. 
The Brazilian head of state also harshly criticized the sanctions and blockades currently applied against Venezuela and Iran. He said that these policies are worse weapons than bombs, since their victims are women, children, and the people in general. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu. There's no podcasts. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 606060 or 6165. At their website, radiohc.cu, you can stream the English version at noon on Monday through Friday, Pacific Daylight Saving Time. All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. Next, France 24. Press reviews on the 30th anniversary of the Oslo Accords and the U.S. possibly releasing some of the Iranian billions in a prisoner swap. France 24. And Aaron, today, uh, the 13th of September, marks 30 years since the signing of the Oslo Accords. What are the papers saying today? Uh, not much positive, uh, Haxi. The Economist argues that 30 years on, the promise of Israeli-Palestinian peace remains as elusive as ever. Perhaps nothing went wrong, the British magazine uh, wonders, arguing that the accords worked as the way that they were supposed to, that is to say, uh, not to work at all. Now, the editorialist in this piece blames that on, on several factors, including the fact that negotiators uh, simply couldn't agree on some of the thorniest issues from the very start, including uh, the status of Jerusalem. So because of that, they simply deferred them and agreed instead simply on interim uh, steps, which obviously are not meant to last. Uh, now, the left-wing Israeli online outlet 972 magazine says that all relevant parties saw something in the Oslo Accords that others did not, uh, each side then kind of trying to gear the agreement to fit its own uh, vision that said that that led to often contradictory political aims on both sides. The piece does, it's worth mentioning, uh, take specific aim at Israel's far-right haxi, which it says sees the world word of the Bible as literally and historically true. Uh, that God granted Jewish people all of the modern-day uh, West Bank. And it says that that means other considerations, uh, including democracy, international law, and humanity, were not even a consideration and thus cannot last. The U.S. and Iran inching closer to a deal that could include a prisoner swap. Tell us more. Yeah, this information is from The Washington Post today. The Biden administration has issued a waiver uh, for banks to transfer $6 billion in frozen Iranian oil funds. It's seen as a key step to securing uh, the release of five American citizens detained in Iran, including Siamak Namazi, an Iranian U.S. citizen who's been there for eight years. It's the longest of any U.S. citizen uh, detained in uh, Iran. Now, those $6 billion funds are actually currently in South Korea, which is one of uh, Iran's largest oil uh, customers. It's, it's been stuck there essentially since 2019 when the Trump administration tightened sanctions on, on Iran. Now, the timing of this deal is also significant, according to one Republican. It's egregious. It comes uh, just a few days before the one year uh, since Mahsa uh, Amini died in the custody of Iran's morality police and whose death, of course, sparked uh, nationwide protests. Now, uh, she's uh, the focus of the Tehran Times today here on the front page. Uh, 
where uh, the paper goes to great pains to uh, refute the manner in which she died uh, using, they say, an expert, a Texas-based expert, uh, they, who refutes that she died from a blow to the head. Uh, the paper instead accusing the foreign-based media of propagating a lie that was passed off as unquestioned fact. Those press reviews were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English. They are also available at most podcast sites. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or wish to support this listener-funded program like a listener in Willits, California did this week, Contact information is available at outfarpress.com or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Your support helps the weekly production of this show, which is distributed without cost to more than 100 radio stations across the globe. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with NHK World Radio Japan. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un met with Putin in Russia and agreed to increase strategic cooperation. China has plans to make the province nearest Taiwan a place of integrated development to advance peaceful reunification. NHK Japan Russian President Vladimir Putin and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un have held their first summit in four years. The two countries are likely to cooperate more in the future, especially when it comes to military technology. The summit took place at the Vostochny Cosmodrome in Russia's eastern Amur region on Wednesday. The leaders spoke for about two hours. At times, only their interpreters were allowed in the room. We need to discuss economic and humanitarian issues, as well as the general situation in the region. I want to take this opportunity to affirm that we always stand with Russia to fight imperialism. Kim and Putin were also seen inspecting the facility's rockets. Kim Jong-un's sister, Kim Yo-jong, was also in attendance. Two top officials from Pyongyang's missile and satellite program were also present. The two leaders then dined together. During the meal, Kim said they had agreed to increase their strategic cooperation. Putin later told reporters there were opportunities for military collaboration as well, but he added Russia would comply with international rules. China has unveiled details of its plan to make the southeastern province of Fujian a zone for integrated development with Taiwan. The announcement of the package of economic incentives comes ahead of Taiwan's presidential election next January. Beijing on Tuesday released 21 specific measures for the province situated across the strait from Taiwan to advance what he calls the peaceful reunification of the motherland. Under the scheme, China will create an environment that encourages Taiwanese firms to do businesses on the mainland. It will also enhance social welfare programs for Taiwanese people to make it easier to work and receive medical services in Fujian. Beijing will try to accelerate cross-strait development by advancing communal integration with residents on Taiwan's Ginmeng Islands.
The measures include providing gas and electricity for the islanders and the construction of bridges connecting Fujian and the island. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 9:30 to 10 p.m. at 7355 and 6165, or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. They're also available at most podcast sites. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Find information about online support. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link, and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 27 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California. Using solar panels, I'm currently recuperating from spinal surgery and staying in a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.